Hey everyone, this is Josh from Solopreneur Grind, and I am here with Sean Meredith from Effective Leadership. Sean, really appreciate you on, uh, coming on the show today. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for asking me. It's really great to be here. Yeah, so this is a really cool episode for me, Sean. What the listeners don't know until right now is, well, two things. Episode 40, so pretty cool number to get to. And the second thing is that Sean is actually my business coach and, and has been for, what's it been, Sean? About a year and a half, I think in, in 2018, around January is when we started. Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. I think it's been about a year and a half. Yeah, so this has been a long time in the making. Really appreciate it. And I'd love for you to just start by telling people a little bit more about yourself. And, and I'm interested to get into uh, into your backstory because I know a little bit about it, but uh excited to get to know a little more. Cool. Yeah, so I am, uh, as Josh said, I'm Sean Meredith. I do uh, executive uh, coaching, business coaching, and um, a lot around kind of the people skills, the white spaces folks say. But um, uh, from a personal angle, I'm I'm in Pittsburgh, PA, I, in the USA. I do most of my work virtually. So uh, in the modern world, I meet with everyone pretty much virtually, except for a few local clients that I do meet in person. And um, let's see, I've been coaching since about uh, 2013. So I, I launched into a coaching career out of a um, career that I had in the mental health world. So I worked as a ecosystemic family therapist for about 15 years, which was a fancy way of saying we did family therapy in the living room with everyone at once. So it was mm -hmm. more wow. akin to say uh, sports refereeing at times, but uh, right. um but it was, it was really great because it, it, it pulled on a lot of the principles of organizational psychology and, and looking at systems and human groups and how they interact and how they position themselves. And uh, that kind of led into it. And in that organization, I ended up directing the program. I took a leadership role in that organization and, and just kept getting interested in coaching on the side. And I did that more and more. And, and as that passion grew, I, I've launched into doing that full time. Right. And I think that's really interesting and helpful that you had that background because, well, for a few reasons, but one of them being that, and, and you and I talk about this almost every session we have, there are very often problems that aren't necessarily strictly business related that come up for entrepreneurs, especially solopreneurs, uh, and I'm sure all entrepreneurs. And so having that background as well has been very helpful for me and I'm sure for most of your clients. Sean, can, can you talk about how you got into that first stage of your professional career? Yeah, it's a, it's a great story, I think, especially for your viewers, because it was such a crooked line. Right. Um, you know, there was, there was no, you know, no logic. I couldn't have plotted it out. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I went to school. Uh, like most folks, I went through high school and went into college. I went right into college. And um, that's just what you did, you know, that, that mm -hmm. I did that because that was the script. And one of the things that you know about me, but just for your listeners, uh, I am dyslexic. So as a dyslexic individual, uh, comprehension is fine. It's more of a physiological thing that affects the text format. So it's hard to read. There's a lot of reading errors and, and, and writing errors because transcribing thought into text, which is something we kind of all take for granted, is more difficult for dyslexic individuals. So um, right. When I was in undergrad, I, I went to, like everyone, I was going to be something that makes money. You know, I was going to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or a, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, 
you know, I, I went into pre-med and I started hitting a lot of walls. You know, I really started uh, failing classes. I started failing some of the heavier. I remember I took, or uh, it was some biology or chemistry class where you had to memorize all these Latin you mm-hmm. know, phylums and whatever they called them. And, and I, and I honestly was, was in threat of even failing out of school. I, I took one class twice. I couldn't pass it. And, uh, and I really had to reevaluate my strategy, you know, as, as a person who learns in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. the, the universities at that time weren't very sympathetic to it. So, um, I can remember I took a, uh, a course catalog that we had. I went to a liberal arts school. I went to Allegheny College. It's in Meadville in Pennsylvania. And I took a course catalog and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to read the descriptions. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to read the titles. I'm not going to worry about my major. I'm not going to worry about any of that. And I'm going to read the descriptions. I'm going to take classes that are interesting that I can um, apply myself to. And what happened was, I think in one semester, I was taking a psychology class, a philosophy class, a studio art class, which was creating art, and a, um, a social dance class where I was learning to, to waltz and tango. And uh, <laughs> it was the best semester of my life. You know, I really, <laughs> yeah, really turned it around. I really, you know, embracing kind of the liberal arts model. But for me, it was important to use my body and my hands and my brain and everything at once. It's, it's dyslexic. That's kind of how we, we do best. So, um, so I, I just kind of kept with that philosophy. You know, I really um, chased the passion in a realistic way. I applied myself. I worked hard. And um, what had happened was I ended up with uh, a psychology degree. And, and it was just kind of where the credits fell. It was what I was interested in. I found some professors that I could really network with. I think um, you know, people don't appreciate how much, uh, well, may, maybe I'm biased here, but, but I, you know, as a coach, I work with humans. And I think that it's those human relationships really drive everything. So what happened mm-hmm. was I found a few professors that really were an advocate for me and, and really um, were invested in my success. And, and so I was able to take their classes and they understood me and my learning style and it, and it really kind of saved my, my educational career. Um, right. So I ended up with a degree in psychology and like probably most of us do, I, I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. So I took a, a nepotism job in the finance world. Um, so my dad worked at a finance firm. I got a low level job there. And, um, and that was an interesting time because I was learning a lot. I was getting paid well, but I just, I really had no passion for what I was doing. Right. Yeah. No, it was just one of these things that, that I fell into because I wasn't being very proactive in my life. I was just kind of, where do I go? I got, I got scared about money. I got a little desperate and I just started kind of taking what I could take, which was the job that was available. And, uh, so I did that for, I think about four years. And, um, what I ended up doing after that was I I hit a point where I was really just getting depressed. You know, I, I I wasn't finding satisfaction and uh, I ended up throwing my hat in the ring for a local university where I got a, uh, master's degree in existential philosophy mm-hmm. because um you know that made sense and uh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and uh, perfect sense to 24 year old me and uh so yeah i i, I went and, and got a master's in philosophy and it was it was amazing soul work you know i learned a lot and i and i was very passionate um but i think i went a little too far because um mm-hmm. the uh you know the degree is is not marketable Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, you could become pretty much a philosophy professor. Um, you know, there's these outlier stories of someone in a high up company who has a philosophy degree, but they're really just outliers. Um, it's not right. 
not strategically wise. Uh, so then what did I do after that? So I, so I ended up talking my way into um, a, uh, a therapy program where the, uh, there was kind of a loophole that the organization itself was licensed to do therapy, not the individuals. It was one of these hmm. just developed that way. Um, and I got to say, Josh, at that point, here I was a kid who had a, a, a philosophy bachelor's, four years experience as a financial planner, or I mean a psychology bachelor's, four years experience financial planner, and a master's in existential uh, philosophy. So talk mm -hmm. about non-marketing, you know, I couldn't market myself to anyone out there. Um, so uh, I think I probably applied for about 300 jobs. Jeez. Yeah. I had a point thinking about that. Oh, gee, I, I had a point at the time. Uh, Efax had just come out, mm -hmm. so what I would do is I would, I just had, I got a routine in my life where every day I would fax three to five resumes to to whoever. I didn't even mm -hmm. care if they were hiring. I was just looking up HR numbers and faxing resumes. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I started getting some interviews. And, uh, and it was, it was by chance. I got an interview at a place, uh, a place was called every child incorporated in Pittsburgh that, um, did a lot of social service work and, and that's where the family therapy program was created. And, uh, so, um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was a, it was a hard path. It was some dumb luck. Um, and I found that job and just really loved the work and, and loved the organization and, and kind of excelled through the ranks there. And what do you do when you show up on the first day for this family therapy type work, given you don't have any experience in it? Like, did, did they put you through training first? Is there an internal something or other? Yeah, there was, there was, there was training. Um, you know, one of the unfortunate things, and, and you know, I'm in the U.S. here in Canada, is that um, the populations we worked with were, were uh, all below the poverty line. So right. there's a specific uh, health insurance in the U.S. if you if you fall below a certain income level, and uh, not to get too far into this, but it's really one of the, the one of the many problems with our healthcare system is that I mean these folks because they were at that level were getting untrained, uh, ineffective therapists. I was one of them. <laughs> you know, it's kind of you're getting what you're paying for. Uh, right. You know, there was training. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things I talk about in coaching, and I know I've talked to you about this probably a long time ago, is that training is always just information. That right. uh, if, you, if you can't get your hands on the task, if you can't experience the task, you're not going to learn. Um, so it was, it was a lot of trial and error. You know, I, I, I tried to um, use my supports. You know, I talked to the, the, consult, the consultants we had. I talked to my supervisor. And, but I really had to be humble and, and honest about what I knew and what I didn't know. And I really right. tried to kind of bite off what I could chew. And, uh, um, and it worked. And, you know, I grew over time. Um, mm -hmm. At this point, I, I, have, I have two children uh, married, and um, I feel like I should probably call back all the families I work with and apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, sorry. Don't listen to anything I said. Um, you know, but it is, it is what it is. Every, everybody has to start somewhere. And, and Absolutely. Yeah, you know, you really just have to be honest about where we're at and, and what we can achieve in that space. Right. And I, I definitely want to get into your next kind of big move and how you transitioned into coaching. But could you summarize, Sean, maybe 
the the difficulties and the switching up of, of degrees and stuff like that and kind of figuring out your next steps could could you give maybe two or three pieces of advice to the younger listeners who may be in that situation right now so maybe they're in university they don't know what they're doing or they're fresh out of university and maybe they don't have the most marketable degrees or, or experience what would you recommend that they do sure um I think there's a few different categories there that you talked about. I think I couldn't hear this when I was younger, but, um, uh, you know, and I'm threat of being an old man preaching now, but, uh, <laughs> academia is a business. Um, you're, you're paying for something. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're paying for a service. You're paying for a degree. Uh, they, the academia, I, I don't know how, but, um, academia has really cornered the market of employment. And I don't think people realize how, how, um, much of a problem that is that it's, it's sometimes it's like the old, um, mafia protection racket that, you know, you, you, you can get a job in this area if you pay me 30, 60, 80, $90,000, uh, right. it, it really is, um, it's a problem that I think we're only starting to deal with. You know, people talk about student loan debt. I think that is a an outcome of a bigger problem, which is we've allowed one path to monopolize the the means to employment. Right. Um, so for folks who haven't signed up yet, I think you need to be very critical about what you're paying for. Um, not to speak negatively of anyone in particular. Uh, but you know, I went to a very expensive, I was very privileged. Um, I went to a very expensive liberal arts school and a lot of what we would, my parents were paying for was, was Disney world stuff, you know, the luxury of the experience, um, which is fine if you want to make that purchase, but I don't think students and kids are, are in the position to realize the purchase they're making. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's somewhat predatory in that regard. And if their parents want to make that purchase, that's fine. Uh, there's a lot of life skills you get. There's a lot of psychological development that goes on in, in universities and, and that stuff is all very important. Um, so, so you really want to think about the primary purpose here is that I'm paying for a piece of paper that allows me to get a job. Mm-hmm. Everything else is icing on the cake. Um, it really just is. So if you want the Cadillac, buy the Cadillac. But um, you know the the, the Civic's going to get you there just as just as good. Uh, um, mm-hmm. So I think go into the experience wisely. You know, go into the experience. Um, I, I think I, I think people we really should be encouraging kids to maybe spend a little more time before they enter college. Uh, I, in hindsight, would have loved if I'd had maybe a year or two of employment. Um, just developing some life skills, getting to know who I was. Um, it probably would have been less bumpy if I did that. Right. You know, know what's out there. My, uh, you know, my, uh, my oldest brother, he's, he's in the finance world. He's a very smart guy and he sits on the board of some local universities and he, he talks about how, um, where he went to school, uh, which was Carnegie Mellon. They, guarantee that they'll support you in employment and they and they do that that uh his graduating class in the nba i think the average job offer right out of school was around um you know one hundred and eighty thousand a year 
So, okay, I I see what I'm paying for. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the board he was sitting on, this local university, they wanted to raise tuition. And he said, you know, why? What's what's the product? What's the service we're offering? How do we justify our cost? And their response, honestly, was people will pay it. Right. (laughs) So these conversations are going on. Uh, you know, behind closed doors. The recruiters aren't going to tell you that. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, let me, let me step to the next category, which is that doesn't mean don't go to school. Right. That means, that means go into it wisely. You know, if I'm going on a hiking trip, buy hiking boots, don't buy sandals. Um, Think about where you want this to apply. And if you don't know where you want it to apply, then maybe you need to spend some time getting to know yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're in school right now, uh, you you got to just basically do the same thing. You really got to think about get some experience talking to people about how is this going to play when I when I get out of here. Uh, mm-hmm. Universities do have um, alumni centers. They have employment centers. Um, those resources are at the schools. Uh, folks should be having conversations. I you know I when I was a director, Josh, I used to hire people with master's degrees and their therapeutic licenses, which, so you're, you're talking maybe 60,000 for a master's. They've spent another few years building up that license, which is cost them money. So mm-hmm. it may be a 50 to $80,000 investment, depending on where they went. And uh, insurance companies set our reimbursement rate. So there was only so much money we could make as a therapeutic organization. So there was a ceiling to what we could pay. Right. So, uh, yeah, you know, we would hire people at thirty-five thousand. Jeez, and we couldn't hire them for more because we there was no more money to be had. The insurance companies, uh, you know, that they they put the ceiling. So anyway, I just say that um, you know that that, that universities, I don't, I, I think, kind of almost unethically, don't really go out of their way uh, to talk to young impressionable people about the cost benefit analysis of of education. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think the key word that you said there is investment. Like we should look at it not as, oh, this is the next step. Let me pick which degree, which school and just go, but analyze it like you would any other financial investment, uh, which probably doesn't happen nearly enough, especially because at that time when you're 17, 18 years old, I mean, I didn't know about any I didn't know how to evaluate a financial, any type of investment, but, uh, the, and the other one thing I will add, Sean is, and this kind of ties into a few things you said, I think the greatest benefit that I got from university is that it gave me time to grow up. So kind of like how you said you would have liked having a year off, maybe get some work experience. I felt that it was actually nice to not have to work and not that I learned so much because I I learned a lot, but 95% of it I've since forgotten, but it gave me those four, you know, four years of undergrad. And then in my case, additional three years of grad school to grow up and kind of figure out what I want to do. And and like you, I was lucky, you know, I had most of my schooling paid for and, uh, but just giving me the chance to grow up, and then at in my early and mid twenties have a better idea of kind of where to go from there, if that makes sense. Sure. Which it, which it does, you know, and I, and I think that goes into that cost benefit analysis. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And one of my friends called me who he didn't go to college. He's very successful. He's a, he's a engineer, train engineer. He drives trains and he hmm. uh, has a very thriving barbecue business on the side. Um, 
definitely they got lots of money they got lots lots going on and uh he didn't go to college his wife didn't and they called me about because uh, they know i went to college and they wanted to know what they should what they should be thinking about right. and you know I, I i basically said that i said college is a great place for kids to grow up and it's safe there's people taking care of them there's um you know people making sure that they're they're risk taking in a controlled way but um yeah but you got to think i mean again cost benefit is that is mm-hmm. that what you want to pay for is that the only uh experimental realm to do that in um i guess as you were talking josh i was realizing that that you know it always begs that question of privilege too so mm-hmm you know, a household that can absorb that cost. I think that you can pay for luxury when you have that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, although it does get a little more difficult when you don't. So the folks that are paying their own way, you know, if you can shave $20,000 off that debt by, by selecting a you know, lower ranked school, n- nobody in the employment world is going to care. I mean, they, right. they look, you know, if you're not going to Harvard or Yale, they just, everything else is pretty much equal right um, yeah ma- makes complete sense so, so sean i want to move further along now your story so you you get into the family therapy therapy stuff i think you said you did it for around 15 years at what point did you start thinking about let's call it your your next move or, or the you know how, how does the coaching and the and the business coaching stuff start to creep in sure uh I was a bit of a rare, a rarity in this day and age because I, I had a long employment at one place. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if you look at my resume, you'll see that about every three years I was, I was switching within that organization. So right. I, I think naturally I would hit uh, competency and in certain positions, which is where you're, you're good at them, but they start to get boring. And, and when I did that, I would look in the, the realm where I was at and I would, I would step out and, and take more risks with, with employment. What I mean by that is the, the organization I worked for was small. It was almost similar to a startup in sense of um, um, its age and its size. So there was lots of flexibility uh, for me to, to take on new challenges and new dimensions and, and advance my own career within the organization. Um, right. So I always really loved working in, in the domain I worked, working with people. Uh, as I got more into leadership, I, I really realized something quite striking, which was the same strategies I was using with my, my quote unquote mentally ill clients um, worked with everybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was kind of like, oh, wait a minute here, what's happening? Um, I think uh, we, we still are, are very primitive when it comes to, to thinking about mental health. I think we're, we're similar to you know, doctors of the 1700s doing bloodletting and that sort of stuff. Um, and a, and a mm-hmm. big indicator for me is that there's really a us first them mentality. So there's kind of the normal or healthy and then the mentally ill, um, which is really not how it works. It's, you know, it's like physical health. We all dip in and out of degrees of, of wellness. Um, so as a, as a supervisor and then as a director, and then um, I, I had a director job that was more of like a leadership role. Uh, they use different words in the nonprofit world. Uh, director mm-hmm. would probably be like a C-level something. Um, I really 
started seeing more and more of that. You know, I'm sitting in these leadership meetings and I'm just seeing people struggling with with communication, people struggling with teaming, people struggling with their own insecurities and their own motivations and, and that sort of stuff. And uh, right. and I really started finding that that servant leadership or more of a coaching style leadership so effective. Um, in the mental health world, uh, money in nonprofit world, money is always an issue and turnover. People keep these jobs for about a year, uh, maybe two. High intensity, high burnout rates. And and when I look back, uh, at one point my org, my domain within the organization, we'd been consistently twenty five percent over budget, and uh, the average tenure of my employees was seven years. Hmm. And so I started thinking about what you know. I was kind of taking it for granted. I'm like, what the heck's going on here? And, and I realized that I really was nurturing the people I was working with, you know, that I was developing them. I was coaching them. I was, I was challenging them to grow and it made it worth sticking around and it made it worth working. Mm -hmm. So I started running into, uh, in conferences, I would run into coaches, executive coaches, people doing this coaching stuff. Cause there's a lot of overlap with the mental health world. So it started giving a name to what I was doing. Um, the coaching still relatively new, you know, the coaching is, uh, some people say it started in the eighties, some of the nineties, some say it's only 10 years old, mm -hmm. but, uh, coaching, uh, you know, so it was always identifying, you know, it was defining itself. And I was kind of learning as it defined itself and more and more, I just, I, I was, honestly, I was hooked. You know, I found myself gravitating towards that. I became sort of less interested in, in the, managerial parts of my job more interested in the people development stuff and um and i did something that uh i i think was pretty key in my own development i had a good relationship with my leader and at one point i actually started struggling that i i, I really started struggling to perform in my my role and i realized that was because i was just interested in other things as I said, I was spending more time on, on certain domains in my job. So I did some soul searching and realized that I, I, I outgrew the position, that I really was ready for something different. So what happened was I met with my leader. I met with um, uh, our CEO and, and my, um, my supervisor and just very vulnerable and candid about that. Um, what was really awesome was that we sat down and negotiated out a way that I could both serve the organization while developing my, my coaching practice. So, right. um, yeah, I think sometimes we don't realize that everything's negotiable in business, that we mm -hmm. really can, uh, uh, get negotiable and, and negotiate roles. And as long as we're, we're serving the mission of the organization, you know, what we're doing can be pretty flexible. Right. So, uh, but, but at that point, Sean, how did you, had you done a lot of research and planning for the coaching business? Like, like did you kind of go into that meeting prepared to say, uh, or did you even know at the time to say, well, this is what I want to start doing on my own? Um, yes and no. So uh, that's a great question. I think it happened co-currently that I really would say I started coaching around 2013. Um, meaning that I went and got a certification. And I started taking on clients. 
I w did not launch 100% into my private practice until much later, probably, uh, you know, towards like the middle of like 2017. That I was always keeping a practice alive while while working as a um, uh, a program manager at this other organization. So uh, it really gave me the realm or the the safety net to kind of play with this this system. I mean, I think my my first coaching client, I probably charged him like ten bucks or something. You know, right. <laughs> just like I was desperate to to say I was a coach, and I didn't really care, and I wanted, you know, again, like I was saying about the family therapy, your good question, how did I get trained with that? I knew the service that I was providing was undeveloped, and I, I wasn't going to go charging people like it was. So, um, mm -hmm. so I started practicing practicing with it, and at the time. Um, I was getting married and I was having children. And so I always, um, one of the ways I looked at it was I'm only going to allow myself to do this if I can maintain my financial benchmarks, my personal financial benchmarks. So, um, so it was really a, a, a grind, as you say, mm -hmm. for, uh, um, you know, long hours. I was basically working two jobs at one point with young children and, and really kind of grinding out that, that coaching practice. Right. So, and were, were you working still full time with the organization? Cause, cause what it sounds like is from around 2012 to 2017, were you doing both as well as raising the family? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're doing everything. Um, right. And it was, it was a lot, you know, it was, it was definitely stressful. I did not have much time for, for, um, you know, hobbies or entertainment or anything like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember I, I saw a Ryan Reynolds interview super long time ago. I can't remember the interview. I wish, I wish I saw it, but, uh, they were asking him if he, if he played video games mm -hmm. and, uh, and he very candidly said, I can't think of a bigger waste of time. <laughs> And, and, yeah. you know, and it was kind of controversial because everybody, of course, wanted him to play video games. And, uh, and I remember thinking, man, that was so brave to say that of him. Um, but two, I was thinking, that's a great point. And what I started doing uh, was I started looking at that cost benefit analysis of time. Mm -hmm. What am I getting for my time? Am, am I making good bargains? Am I making good deals? Uh, if I watch, you know, a Netflix series, what am I getting? Well, I'm getting some relaxation. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm getting some entertainment. I'm getting maybe some new ideas, although we kind of stay within our echo chambers, even with our media. Um, and and what happened was I naturally didn't really need that stuff. You know, you I was using it more strategically. I certainly binge out on Netflix sometimes, but I'm going to do it strategically now. Mm -hmm. It's it's more of like a treat. Um so, yeah, so I was working full-time. I, I was probably working about full-time in the, in, the, in the mental health job. I was working about half-time in, the, um, in the, the coaching practice. And then um, I was working with, uh, you know, uh, my family. It's very important to me to be present to my family. So a lot of times mm -hmm. what I was doing is, you know, working nights after the kids went to bed. Right. Right. Yeah, it is so interesting. And it's funny because I, I loved computer games, especially like growing up through my teens, I played a ton of, of video games on the computer. And then, and now I haven't played them probably in four or five years, just because like you said, you, you kind of do that budgeting of your time and, and what's the return. <laughs> and it is, it is pretty low. It's sad to say, 
And uh, especially, I mean, the, the video game industry is, is enormous. So there's definitely no shortage of people playing them. But uh, it's funny how priorities and, and things like that shift over time. So, Sean, I, I'd love to know how you got the coaching practice started because we, we've kind of covered, you know, going through the difficult times and figuring out your path and stuff like that. And I know for me getting started on my own, the first few steps, even once you figure out, okay, in your case, I want to be a business coach and, and you have the experience and you're kind of ready to get started. What were those first few months like, especially when it comes to getting those first few clients? Sure. That's a great question. Um, I've, I tell all my clients this, including you, uh, make the first dollar. Mm -hmm. Just, just make that, that first dollar. Uh, The reason I say that is not for the love of money. The reason I say that is because there is so much, um, so many layers that, uh, and there's so many people there, there, you know, when it comes to like thinking about the video games and even thinking about starting a business, there, there's so much, uh, there's so many predatory things out there. You know, video games are paying people a lot of money to figure out how to trap you. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst thing that ever happened was, I don't know why I use steam. I don't know why steam did this, but they started showing you how long you play games. Right. And, and I'm telling you, that got me unhooked. I was like, I've really just spent 20 hours doing this? Like, that's not okay. Um, yeah, I remember uh, World of Warcraft, too. You used to be able to type slash played, and it would show you on that account how much you had. And I tried not to look at it very often. <laughs> yeah, and, and people, like, brag about it. Like, I've played this game for 500 hours. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, you could have, like, built a house from scratch. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, so, so so slipping back to the business, again, I'm always thinking about, you know, strategically, like, what am I really doing right now? You know, I'm big on the mindfulness stuff. What am I doing right now? What am I doing right now? Is it is it serving my goals? So when I started the coaching practice, I didn't rush off and get a website. I didn't get an LLC. I didn't even get a bank account. I did the thing I wanted to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, if I want to be an accountant, go add up some numbers. If I want to be a therapy therapist, go talk to someone about their problems. If I want to be a bricklayer, go lay some bricks. That that really, there's so many layers that people get in this. Um, I, I I'm kind of a. It's funny, it's your 40th episode. I'm 40, so there's some <laughs> synchronicity there. Uh, I there there was a movie Spaceballs. It's probably an old movie now. But I love this I scene. It, yeah. yeah, there's a scene where Rick Moranis is uh, chasing the good guys. He's he's the Darth Vader character. He's chasing the good guys, and the good guys zoom away, and he says, "You know, go to light speed." And everyone in the ship is going, preparing for light speed, preparing for light speed, preparing for light speed. And he's like, "Why are you always preparing? Just go." <laughs> and uh, and it ends up being terrible for him. But uh, I think that um, we do that. You know, somebody mm-hmm. wants to start a small business, they're passionate about something, and they don't do that something. They go and get a website, and they get an accountant, and they learn about taxes, and they, uh, you know, write an endless blog that nobody's reading. You know, they don't really, mm-hmm. uh, they aren't really data-driven. At the end of the day, you know, at the, at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to create something in this world and make money doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's all that really matters. You know, if you do your taxes wrong, so what? They're going to come back and say you owe us more money and you're going to pay them more money. Um, right. 
you know, if you, if you, if you break some regulations, you're going to learn. The auditors are friendly. They're not going to, you know, throw handcuffs on you right away. They know you're learning. The people know mm-hmm. you're learning. Um, well, do you think, Sean, that ultimately it comes down to fear? Because all those things that you mentioned, which are so popular, you know, make a website, a logo, like these are all nice vanity things that kind of also make you feel like you are working on the business but you're not actually taking that first step, you know, towards revenue. Do you think it's just that people are kind of afraid to, to take that, those money making yeah. steps? I think so. Um, uh, but I think that saying uh, you're afraid is maybe um, uh, uncomplicating a complicated process. Right. You know, it's easy to say I'm afraid. Oh yeah, I'm afraid. But you know, being afraid is very different. Um, I think, people are avoiding the occasion of judgment. Right. Either I'm going to succeed or I'm not. And a lot of times that's what the money symbolizes. It symbolizes my success. Um, even though that's kind of a dumb symbol for it, but that's what we, we utilize. Uh, I remember I used to do this practice and confidence with my therapist. If I were really unconfident, I would, I would take a post-it note and I would say, I'm going to write on here, uh, you know, plus or minus, if I write a plus, it means I think you're a good therapist. If I write a minus, it means I think you're a bad one. And then I'd fold it in half and I'd hand it to him and I'd say, do you want to open it? <laughs> Most of the time people wouldn't open it. Really? Huh. Yep. We, we just don't want to, this is why people never actualize stock options. Stock options are a wonderful product that manipulates humans because, because the price could go higher. You know, we don't like right. that moment of actualization. Um, usually in that, in that posted exercise, I wouldn't write anything. I'd write like you're your own person. Cause I don't know if they're good or bad therapists, but right. you know, it was exemplifying that, that fear, you know, th- there's this contradiction that we only get better at things by doing things, but we're afraid to do things. Um, right. you know, so we're never going to get better. So, um, what I would say one last piece I'm thinking of Josh is that, um, there's a beautiful term, uh, I'm a big fan of Freud. Um, I, I feel like I need to defend that a little because people, he's gone into pop culture. People don't quite understand what he was doing, um, including in, in the U.S. and Canada, when they translated Freud's work, the, the translator took it upon himself to change a lot of the words. So most people don't really understand Freud. They think he's this guy who was like a cocaine head afraid of sex or something, but it's really not accurate. But anyway, he had a beautiful thing called sublimation, and sublimation was when uh, a human wanted to do something that they either that they couldn't feel they could do. A lot of times he was talking about um, things that were taboo in society. So instead of doing the thing, we would do another thing to try to uh, satiate that, scratch that itch, so to speak. So, right. you know, for example, I want to uh, go punch the neighbor in the nose and I can't do that. So I join a judo class and punch someone else or I go home and yell at my kids or something. But that was, it was a complex thing he observed that people would do. I think that's what you're talking about, that, that we really want to, we have this creative dream and energy that we want to expend on, on the doing of our art, whatever that art is. And that's very scary. So if I go and build a logo or a website, by the way, everybody knows that. So they're going to charge me 25 to $2,000 to do that. Um, you're right. I can sit down and say, oh, I did something today. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, Sean, I, I know we're, 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 on the, we're on the clock here. I just have two questions for you. Number one is, 
what are two or three pieces of advice or, or things you would give to people to get to that first dollar? Um, I think uh, the biggest one is you have to be data driven. Data will keep you honest. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't matter what that data point is. Uh, it's the same as like working out. At the end of the day, if you don't record your calories or if you don't record how you're working out, it's anecdotal. You're just guessing if you did well or not. Um, so you got to find some way. And this is a lot of what we do in coaching. This is one of the things you and I did. Mm -hmm. We think about what is the data? You know, what will drive that outcome? The dollar is the outcome. What, what is the data that will keep us honest that we can track? And, and people need to find out what that is for them. That's why coaching is different than consulting because I'm not going to tell people what that data point is. We need to find it. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is then, um, you know, routine. Just, just really finding what you're supposed to be doing in the moment and doing it and just over and over and over again. Um, I am a big fan of going smaller. If you think you have an actionable item, break it in half, then break it in half and break it in half again to the point where it's boring. Right. You, you and I talk about this a lot. We yeah. really get, you know, we get tantalized by the, the, the big exciting things when really what we need to do is, you know, a push up 5,000 times. Right. And there's nothing exciting about that. Yeah. Uh, the grind. The grind. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's all coming back to me and, and has come up between you and I many times before. And, and it's been very helpful. So that's great, Sean. My last question is, for other people that are out there, maybe they're working full time, maybe they are still in school, but but they are not feeling fulfilled, or there's something else out there that they know they're kind of made to do or, or think they should be doing. What What two or three pieces of advice would you have for them? Um, I think you need to acknowledge that feeling first and foremost. Um, mm -hmm. You need to start tracking it. You need to start observing it. One of the things I say to everyone I coached is stop analyzing, start observing, start mm -hmm. noticing. Uh, that, that was, uh, that's, that was actually a long standing note on my, like my <laughs> Gmail to do list. I usually have my, you know, things I actually need to do for my business. And then at the very bottom, I'll keep like two or three kind of themes or, or overarching things I want to keep in mind. And probably for about a year, it was, uh, it was exactly that because you kept mentioning it and, and I kept realizing how important it was. So yeah, that's, that's huge. Yeah. So next time we coach, I'm going to tell you to put that sign back up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, because yeah. Because, you know, if we're really honest in the moment, it's about stripping away all the BS. So if we're honest in the moment, you know, do I like what I'm doing or not? And if I, and if I don't, then what am I feeling drawn towards? Mm -hmm. It's it's not about analyzing. You know, there's not some some psychologist or coach or, or soothsayer that's going to look into your soul and say, you're a bricklayer. You know, that, that uh, right. it doesn't happen that way. What you do is you go around and you trust your gut and you, you trust your emotions because they are, they're wise, they're leading you. It's a compass that, mm -hmm. that you can follow. And, uh, and you just start doing the things you like, but you're always doing that cost-benefit analysis. So, you know, I'm doing the things I like, and are they sustaining me enough in life? You know, uh, um, I've coached so many people that, man, they're, you know, I'm, I'm an, I'm a, I don't know, game developer. We were talking about games. Well, what do you do? Well, I've been get, developing my magnum opus for the last 25 years. Oh, okay, how's that working for you? You know, uh, <laughs> let's, let's keep developing. 
So, um, you know, it's about getting stuff out there and being honest about that feedback loop and getting stuff out there and being honest about that feedback loop. That's why I say go smaller, smaller. So, right. um, passion is going to be something you discover through right. experience. It's not going to be something you really lead with. Right. Yeah. It's, it's all great stuff, Sean. This has been really awesome. Great advice. And, uh, was really nice to get to know a little bit more about you and how you got to where you are. Where can people find you if they're interested to learn more, maybe reach out, maybe, uh, you know, take advantage of, of the awesome coaching services you provide. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, my coaching, uh, practice is affective leadership so it's an a affective a play on the emotion word but um the the web address is affect leader that's a f f e c t leader l-e-a-d-e-r.com so affect leader and then um you can also find me on linkedin so if you just look up sean meredith on linkedin um you can find me pretty quick on there um i feel free to message me reach out Coaching is always about developing the relationship. I'll meet with anybody. I'll talk to anybody about anything free of any obligation just to see if, if coaching is even a fit. Um, you know, so uh, those are two great ways to find me. And then if you want to email directly, it's Sean at affectleader.com. So that's S-H-A-W-N-A-F-F-E-C-T leader.com. Awesome. And we will provide links to all of those in the description so people yeah. don't have to rewind and, and match up the the letters. Sean, thank you again for coming on the show. Really appreciate all your time. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, man. Hey everyone, Josh here checking in just one last time. Wanted to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. And if you want to keep getting more of the Solopreneur Grind content, make sure to join the email list. What I do is send three emails a week with additional content such as what's going on in the background of my solopreneur journey, insights I'm having on business, and updates when new podcast episodes like these come out as well. It's free. It always will be. The link to join is in the description of whatever podcast platform you're listening this to on. Really hope to have you on the list and continuing to share these awesome solopreneur journeys and insights with you as well. Have a great day and hope to see you soon.